Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. A society that prohibits the capacity to speak in truth extinguishes the capacity to live in justice. Tyrannies invert the rule of law. They turn the law into an instrument of injustice. They cloak their crimes in a faux legality. They use the decorum of the courts and trials to mask their criminality. Those such as Julian Assange who expose that criminality to the public are dangerous. For without the pretext of legitimacy, the tyranny loses credibility and has nothing left in its arsenal but fear, coercion, and violence. The long campaign against Julian and WikiLeaks is a window into the collapse of the rule of law, the rise of what the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin calls our system of inverted totalitarianism, a form of totalitarianism that maintains the fictions of the old capitalist democracy, including its institutions, iconography, patriotic symbols, and rhetoric, but internally has surrendered total control to the dictates of global corporations. I was in the London courtroom when Julian was being tried by Judge Vanessa Baretzer, an updated version of the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland, demanding the sentence before pronouncing the verdict. It was judicial farce. There is no legal basis to hold Julian in prison. There is no legal basis to try him, an Australian citizen, under the U.S. Espionage Act. The CIA spied on Julian and the embassy through a Spanish company, UC Global, contracted to provide embassy security. This spying included recording the privileged conversations between Julian and his lawyers as they discussed his defense. This fact alone invalidates any trial of Julian. Julian is currently being held in a high-security prison so the state can, as Niels Melzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, has testified, continue the degrading abuse and torture it hopes will lead to his physical and psychological disintegration. The U.S. government directed the London prosecutor, James Lewis. Lewis presented these directives to Baritzer in the court. Baritzer adopted them as her legal decision. It was judicial pantomime. Lewis and the judge insisted they were not attempting to criminalize journalists and muzzle the press while they were busy setting up the legal framework to criminalize journalists and muzzle the press. And that is why the court works so hard to mask the proceedings from the public, limiting access to the courtroom to a handful of observers, and making it hard and at times impossible for us to access the trial online. It was a tawdry show trial, not an example of the best of English jurisprudence, but the Lubyanka. It is imperative that those of us who care about a free press and the persecution of an innocent man for Julian has not committed a crime. Make our presence felt in the streets. I will be in Washington on October 8th with, I hope, thousands of others to ring the Department of Justice to call for Julian's release, an act that will be replicated by protesters surrounding the British Parliament the same day. Joining me from Mexico, where the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has defended Julian's innocence and offered asylum to the WikiLeaks founder is Julian's father, John Shipton. 
so John, first, just bring us up to date as to where we are. It's a little, I worked very hard to follow it, but it's a little convoluted. It's gone back down to the lower court just in, in that uh, appeal process. Can you explain what's happening? Uh, well, uh, Julian's uh, submitted uh, uh, to the high court uh, an application uh, to get approval to appeal. <laughs> um, after Julian submitted his uh, appeal, the United States has eight weeks from that date to submit their arguments. And the United States uh, have asked for a four-week extension, so they want 12 weeks. I, I guess that'll take it up to past the uh, midterm elections. For some reason or other, they want to do that. Um, and after that, uh, the judge makes a single judge, high court judge, makes a decision as to whether the appeal can go ahead and then the preparation for the appeal. So I guess all up at least another eight months uh, 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 if the appeal can go ahead. If it doesn't go ahead, if they refuse permission to appeal, then Julian uh, can at the moment appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, but that is looking parlous as the United Kingdom has decided that they want to introduce what they call a Bill of Rights based on community values, which a, a committee set up by the, the government decides what the community values are. Uh, it uh, is a, a convoluted uh, movement towards a sort of arbitrary lawlessness depending upon what the committee decides this day or that. The Court of Human Rights doesn't have any jurisdiction in the UK. It doesn't have any capacity to actually block the extradition, does it? No, it doesn't. But it makes a, a recommendation, and as the United Kingdom is a signatory, that uh, a recommend a signatory to the Council of Human Rights, the European Council, Council of Europe, uh, they so far have taken seriously the uh, declarations of the European Court of Human Rights and acted upon them. I, I assume in the case of Julian, uh, they seem determined, they seem to be an equal participant. Many people make observation that the United Kingdom is a cat's paw for the United States or a proxy, but from their behavior, which you just described, and their malice, malice and intent, they are equal partners in this, or more than equal partners in this, uh, in this persecution. I just remind everybody that in the Nuremberg Code, the first element is that if you commit a crime, you can't say, Somebody asked me to do it or ordered me to do it. The committing of a crime falls upon your shoulders. So it is with the United Kingdom Crown Prosecuting Service and those judges, uh, Judge Taylor, Judge Snow, and Judge Arbuthnot, and finally Judge Baritza, who have taken these decisions and 
uh, how can we say, turn the whole thing into a an unfolding, rolling star chamber. Well, Baritza didn't hide her malice. I mean, on just petty little stuff, for instance, they put Julian in this plastic box or, you know, plexiglass box where he couldn't really hear the proceedings and his defense attorneys asked that he be allowed to sit with them as any defense anybody can in a court of trial and the prosecution didn't object and she wouldn't let him out. Yes, that was the most extraordinary thing that Julian had to get on his knees and whisper through yeah. a 30 yeah. millimeter crack into the ear of the barrister on the other side who was standing on their tiptoes to give instruction. It was just a comedy. Well, you know, a cruel comedy, but uh, not only that, Julian, as you remember, spoke up once and the, the Judge Baritza said, you have two uh, barristers, two able QCs to speak for you. You must sit down. If you speak again, you'll be taken to the cells below the court and the hearing will continue. Julian is held in as you mentioned, a maximum security prison incommunicado. He cannot communicate, and that is a deliberate act of the Crown Prosecuting Service because, as you know, Julian's support and his voice would carry around the world. So held incommunicado and with malicious intent, unable to give instructions to his barristers in the court hearing. What on what issues is he? Uh, are the lawyers basing the appeal because they're not? Uh, th- they they are the issues that were not addressed by the high court. Perhaps you can explain uh, what it is he's appealing. So there's 18 charges in all. Um, 17 of them are under the Espionage Act, and one of them is uh, a computer intrusion charge. <laughs> So these accumulated in indictments one after the other after the other. So the first indictment was the computer intrusion. The second was the uh, 18 uh, espionage charges, and the third was a combination of the two. Um, each time the Crown Prosecuting Service and the Judge Baritza allowed these super... <laughs> what they call a super indictment, oh, my God, a super indictment to go ahead. I guess after a while, words uh, fail you how to describe this grotesque and monstrous injustice that's carried on before our eyes. And as uh, Professor Nils Melzer uh, describes, a slow-motion death before our eyes, a slow-motion murder, he said, before our eyes. Um, This has, you know, in the face of every single European parliament having a cross-party group of Assange supporters in its parliament, the German parliament, to the extent that 90 parliamentarians voted for... uh, to bring before the U.S., the United States, Germany, friendship group as an agenda item, the 
persecution of Julian. The French Parliament uh, spent an hour debating uh, Julian's circumstances. The recent election of the Australian government, uh, Labour government, uh, uh, you know, similar to the Democrats, uh, under Anthony Albanese, was elected on a platform of bringing Julian Assange home. 88% of Australians want Julian uh, brought home to Australia. So the support in the community is immense worldwide, globally. The institutions of state, State Department, the Department of Justice and the FBI seem to have a malignant approach to Julian Assange, using Julian as a means to constrain, I would say truncate altogether, that magnificent element of the American Constitution, the First Amendment. They don't like it. They don't like their own golden gift, those people. It's very strange. Do you think that the persecution of Julian, it appears, was ramped up after WikiLeaks published Fold 7? This was the leaked uh, information about how the CIA could hack into smartphones and cars and everything else. Do you, do you, uh, because the Obama administration did not call for the extradition of Julian, uh, but this changed under the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo at the CIA. Do you see that as the kind of turning point, uh, or do you think this was always the intent? I think it was always the intent, but the fellow like Mike Pompeo thought, thought that he'd leave a support from the institutions of state, particularly the CIA, if he put his uh, weight behind it. Uh, yeah, I, that's what I think. Uh, you know, it was opportune. He's just an opportunist uh, and not much good at being Secretary of State, nor was he any good at, at running the CIA. You will see that the CIA, thirty, uh, a total of 30 C CIA members, either past or serving, I think nine serving out of the 30, uh, leaked or, how to describe it, gave evidence of the... Uh, plans of the CIA in the uh, in the spying on Julian and their proposals to either murder or or kidnap Julian and their uh, arrangements with MI5 so 30 uh, CIA uh, officers made uh, statements to Yahoo journalist. So, in effect, uh, blowing up <laughs> Mike Pompeo's uh, chances of uh, moving towards 2024 and, and an election. So, it, it's not as homogenous as it looks. You know, Julian does have support within the CIA. Um, uh, those so, elements. Sorry, go on. No, that's yeah. right. I just want to talk about the conditions under which he's held, which are, I mean, first of all, I don't even understand how they can hold him. Is he in there on a bail violation? I mean, there's the whole thing is, and he's uh, in the highest security prison in the UK. But talk about his, his con the conditions. 
Uh, he's held in a cell, you know. Um, uh, Nils Melzer visited Julian in that in that cell. Nils at the time was the rapporteur on torture and unusual punishment in the United Nations. So it is a cell that uh, it fulfills the regulations that are laid down by the United Nations for a single occupant. He's in there 23 hours a day. Um, his circumstances over the last couple of years have been constrained by uh, petty bureaucratic requirements or bureaucratic obfuscations or bureaucratic uh, saying, for example, as Judge Baraitza did, no, it's the jail's responsibility to let Julian out of the plastic box up the back of the court. And then the jail said, no, that's the... the uh, that's the contractors. That's the contractors' responsibility. That they have contract uh, officers who uh, guard the prisoners on their on their journey to and from the court. So they use bureaucracy to continue this sort of what I describe as a deluge of malice. Um, at one on one occasion, uh, Julian had no access to his court papers uh, to prepare had seen his lawyers for six months over COVID and was unable to have visits for fam from family because of the jail was locked down from COVID. So all of these uh, uh, things, you know, they just continue to uh, grow into a sort of like this deluge of malice that uh, is delivered upon Julian Assange. I remind everybody that Julian is a remand prisoner. That is, he's innocent. I also remind people that he's a publisher. And on either side of him in the jail are murderers in cells. And the prison itself is a remand prison for for uh, murderers, rape, major crimes, terrorists, and so on. They keep Julian in there because the, that sort of prison, a maximum security prison, is incommunicado. You can't speak out at all. And that is their intent with Julian. He suffered from serious health issues. He's had minor strokes, came out in court that he's had psychotic episodes. Of course, we have to uh, acknowledge that he was already seven years locked up in the Ecuadorian embassy after being granted political asylum by Ecuador, but then, of course, the UK would not allow safe passage from the embassy to Heathrow Airport. Um, I, I just don't know how he endures um, what is now over a decade of this kind of systematic abuse. And I think, as Niels Melzer said, this is totally the intent. Yeah, yes, well, his 26-page report which was accepted by the UNGA, the United Nations General Assembly. Um, and he submitted that, submitted that report to the United Kingdom government, to the Swedish government. The Swedish government was a little more, um, how can we say, responsive to Nils. The, the uh, United Kingdom government used uh, several uh, bureaucratic uh, 
obfuscations to cause Nils some discomfort, but Nils, uh, in interviewing Julian in the jail, just used uh, reserves of patience. You know, for example, uh, Nils, uh, after a completing examination of Julian, asked to see the prison governor, but the, the prison governor had gone home early that day. So there are several items like that. Um, it, it's really difficult because you know, Nils Melzer is a United Nations officer and the, the United Kingdom is a member of the United Nations. And as a member of the United Nations, the United Nations officers are, uh, are treated with dignity and given access. So that's their job. That's his job is to go to the jails. So I, I, it's really difficult to uh, understand how the authors of these magnificent civil artifacts from the late 20th century, the United Nations, the covenants uh, on uh, covering, uh, there's the Geneva Conventions and the Conventions of Asylum, all of these wonderful covenants. The very authors of those covenants have abandoned them completely. I remind, you know, you can remind us clearly because it's your area. In 1948, the Eleanor Roosevelt and Herbert Bear Evatt, the president of the United Nations at the time, brought about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and adopted it into the United Nations. Equally, in 1958, they adopted the Conventions of Asylum, which were ratified under the authorship of Australia in 1973 by the UNGA, the United Nations General Assembly. These magnificent artifacts, they've abandoned. For what reason, we just cannot understand. Well, I remember in Niels Melzer's book, which I recommend to everyone, I think it's probably the best book on the case, he talks about the disrespect uh, that is uh, visited upon him when he goes into Belmarsh and contrasts that with all sorts of tyrannies around the world. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the governor, he said that it was unheard of that the uh, this, of course, visit was set up well in advance that the governor of the prison decided not even to be there. Um, I want to talk about how we're going to resist. Uh, I think there are many flagrant examples in the judicial process that in any kind of normal trial would have seen uh, this uh, thrown out of court. I mean, uh, destroying attorney-client privilege, trying to try yeah, somebody who's not even the U.S. citizen under uh, the Espionage Act, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the importance of what's going to happen on October 8th uh, in Washington, and I will be there, uh, the idea is that it starts at noon to surround the uh, Department of Justice and demand that uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland drop the charges against uh, Julian. People can find out more information about this at AssangeDefense.org. But I think you probably would agree that these Popular protests are vital if we're going to secure Julian's freedom. Uh, yes, uh, you know the street actions are just wonderful. Um, they're going to surround Parliament, 
uh, in Washington, in, in London, uh, in, in DC, they're going to surround the Department of Justice. And in Australia, they're going to, uh, cross the Princess Bridge in, in Melbourne and so on in Sydney's and so on in Paris and so on in Berlin. Um, the upwelling of, what would you call it? Hmm. There is a moral trajectory to life which has been abrogated completely in the case of Julian Assange. And that moral trajectory, the hunger for truth or the understanding that somebody who acts is a, as a champion of truth is a treasure to all human beings. The understanding of that fills, if to use a religious word, the soul, or if to use a secular word, the social mores of societies. And this seems to me, because the upwelling is significant right around the world, this upwelling of support, it seems to me that this is a moment, a historical moment, where the, the degradation and collapse into barbarity of the last 20 years has finally worked its way into our societies as an understanding that this cannot go on. The flux of life will not permit ongoing barbarity. And so we use Julian Assange as a symbol of that. Uh, that seems, after my experience of the last five years of constant speaking to people, it seems that that is the motive. It's hard to grasp. There are no metrics for it except our sensibility. And uh, I, I adumbrate that our sensibilities have been so inflicted with this decline into a barbarian, barbarous nations, uh, equal for my nation, uh, Australia, the UK, and uh, the United States. And it, it's in, it's a, a sort of a global Western phenomenon, as you can see in Germany and France. They're indifferent. They've become indifferent. The distance between the governments and the people, in particular, example, is the Yellow Vests, where several of them were killed for corner protests and many hundreds blinded by rubber bullets. Um, similarly, in, in Germany, the, the political class is completely indifferent to the coming uh, collapse of the uh, German industry without uh, energy supplies. So Julian seems to, Julian Assange, a truth seeker, a truth, sorry, not a truth seeker, a person who brings truth to us is a symbol that we can grasp and that our uh, social sensibilities or soul feeling, if you're religious, can imbibe on that and Consequently, we do join hands and form 
a, a bridge or a, a circumnavigation of the Department of Justice. And we should be clear, because I think it's often lost on many people, that the WikiLeaks documents revealed the corruption, the cynicism, the manipulation, the uh, abuse uh, internally in governments around the world, in Tunisia and Haiti. And this was tremendously empowering to people around the globe because the, the veil was ripped back on what their rulers were doing to them. It was an extremely important global moment. Yes. As I'm in Mexico City now, um, and, you know, having followed the history of uh, South America just as an interest, not as a study, uh, over the last 30 years, one can see now, after the revelations, particularly of the cables, is the form and structure and administrative structures of uh, countries in South America have undergone significant changes. And Mexico has be, is becoming a vibrant industrial society. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, even to the extent they're contemplating uh, uh, manufacturing transistors here from uh, uh, wafers, you know, this is the foremost uh, technology on the earth, uh, and they're contemplating that here. This wouldn't have happened under the crude administrations prior to uh, prior to the revelations in the cables. You get to know how it is that your government uh, administers and what they do in order to administer and how that power is distributed, who distributes the power, and why do they distribute the power in a particular area? And why isn't it? Why is it that one country, for example, Canada, can have single payer uh, medical care, and Mexico can't have single payer medical care? So they get to understand that, you know, in the United Kingdom, where I go frequently, the contemplation of nationalization of a, a strategic mineral wouldn't be is impossible to think about you it's unthinkable it's sort of a taboo but here uh, the government of Mexico uh, under Abrador has just nationalized lithium which is a strategic uh, metal uh, it's you know, again, it's only measurable uh, after, over the expiation of time. You can see the changes, and you can see you can characterize it that the pink tide rolled in about ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and then it was repressed, and now the pink tide arises again. So the community of feeling, the community feeling in uh, South America, rises again. Uh, to the surface and carries uh, the communities here in, into uh, a future which is uh, has more participation by the people and less authoritarian impulses from governments. Well, we have a lot to learn from the global 
South. That was John Shipton, uh, father of Julian Assange. We're talking about the event on October 8th in Washington uh, at 12 noon to surround the Department of Justice. I will be there demanding that Merrick Garland drop the charges against Julian Assange. You can find out more about that protest at Assange.org. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.